0: I think as long as I remember since I was a kid, I loved soundtracks. I loved the way that music interacted with stories. Music is an
1: important tool for any movie or television show. The same is true for podcasts.
2: I think I've seen people sort of turn what we thought of as podcast scoring on its head in ways I'm really excited about.
1: From LA Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Khoa. Today, making music for podcasts. We talk to two composers who take us behind some of the podcast themes and music choices they love. Music does a lot for any form of storytelling. It sets the tone, conveys character, elevates emotions. In many ways, podcast scoring is still an emerging art, and it's becoming more important by the day. I remember the first podcast that stood out to me for its use of music, Snap Judgment. The show's tagline is storytelling with a beat. And listen, they really mean it.
0: My name is from Washington, and my humble task is making radio great again. And again, when you're listening to Snap Judgment,
1: And to this day, I still think the best use of music in a podcast is S-Town, whose scoring effectively conjures the feel of its rural Alabama setting. On this episode, I talk with two people who represent a new wave of music composers who primarily work in podcasts. Ramtin Arablui is a musician and producer, and these days, he's also the music composer behind many of NPR's popular podcasts. His journey to NPR is almost accidental. A few years ago, he was playing with his band Drop Electric in a local DC club, when NPR's Bob Bylan, the dean of All Songs Considered, approached him after his set. He wanted to feature the band in an episode of the show. That exposure got him a manager and calls from labels. Eventually, he crossed paths with NPR again. This time,
0: they asked if he could help out with an episode of TED Radio Hour with Guy Raz. We did that. It was a really good experience. And then he tells me afterwards, like, hey, I'm going to work with you again. I just really love the way you think. This was such a good experience. And I didn't think anything of it because people say things like that all the time, right? Uh, and <laughs> it doesn't come to fruition. Fast forward again, another six months, I randomly get a text from guy being like, hey, can we talk? I have a project I want to work with you on. So I'm like, okay, whatever. He's like, I'm working on this new idea for a business podcast at NPR. I want you to come in and produce it. And I was like, I haven't ever done that before. I mean, the only journalistic experience I had was I worked on like my college newspaper. And... He was like, don't worry about it. Just come in and, and I'll help you and we'll teach you and we'll work on it together. Just give me like three or four weeks. I was kind of hesitant to even give him that because I was going out to LA and hustling and trying to get, you know, soundtrack gigs or sound design gigs. And so I agreed because I liked him and I wanted to try it. I thought it would be a fun like experiment. So I go and uh three, four-week project turns out to become how I built this, mm. where I had to basically Produce it and write the music for it and all of that. And it ends up becoming a hit show. Over the next few years, Ramteen would compose music for nearly every NPR podcast, including five theme songs. Honestly, I don't know how to explain it. It just happened really (laughs) suddenly. And it just was one gig to the next. And the next thing you know, it's like one of those things you climb to the top of a mountain and you look back down. You're like, whoa, I did all that stuff, but I didn't even really take note of it while I was doing it.
1: All right. So let's start talking about um, how you approach scoring a podcast or, or making a podcast theme, mm-hmm. I, I imagine that like there's some sort of functional work that goes into what a theme is supposed to do. It's supposed to like set the tone, it's supposed to ease you into what the show is supposed to be. And when you kind of sit down and you think through, for example, like Tet Radio Hour, what are you doing there? what are you yeah. looking for?
0: You know, I get the most out of having a conversation with the creators. I ask people what their favorite music is, what shows they really like. I tell them what I like. And we kind of have a dialogue. And then eventually, usually I try to get to actually talking about specifically what the theme is we're trying to do for their show. Because I view this work as collaborative. But also, ultimately, when you're writing music for a podcast that someone else is making, or a film, or any experience I've had, you're serving their vision, right? You're serving what they're trying to achieve. So for that reason, it's really important to get to know the people making it. So Ted Radio Hour, for example... You know, that show is about wonder, it's about like posing big questions. In that sense, I really thought that the music should have an orchestral sound, it should have a kind of a wondrous, something that would make you just like ask big questions and think big. What makes sense there is some kind of like driving orchestral rhythm. But the other thing is, you know, it's a radio show and a podcast. And so in a radio show format, that that music has to just like reel you in. You have to know that I when I'm hearing this, it's Ted Radio Hour coming. The hmm. same way you feel like when you hear the opening hit of Radio Lab, when you hear the kind of voices and the cascading sound effects, you know, okay, I'm getting ready to, like, have a radio lab experience. And I think the music has to have a certain novelty to it. It can't sound packaged or it can't sound like a lot of other things. It has to have that sense of, like, originality, but also that pop right at the start. Nowadays, Ramtin co-hosts his own NPR
1: podcast called Throughline with Rund Abdul-Fattah. And of course, he wrote the theme for that, too.
0: I asked him to walk me through the process. When we were creating the show, when Rund and I were creating the show, we knew that the show's all about looking at history through a current events lens. So we look at things that are happening. So we knew that for a lot of the episodes, we wanted to have some kind of montage at the beginning of, so instead of sitting there and explaining, this is what's happening in the world right now, we just have a montage of news clips kind of do that work. So we don't spend a ton of time talking at the top. And so we needed music that was driving, that had rhythm, that could, a montage could sit over and work. So that was the first thing I knew it needed like rhythm and you need a beat. The second thing was, the tone of the show is serious. It's not like a lot of NPR's content is um, has whimsicalness to it, and I think that's the case in general in podcasting. And like you know, we didn't want to make you necessarily laugh about what's happening and like the relationship between Hong Kong and China up to now, because it's like mostly not funny. It starts ambient and mysterious, and it builds. So it goes. If you listen to the show, usually the the cascading montages are cut to that rhythm. We wanted to create something that had that same effect where you knew like, okay, this is I'm listening to ThruLine so it's gonna have a certain vibe and I'm expecting a certain storytelling style and mood. That was the goal there. I'm a huge hip hop head, so anytime I can fit a boom bap beat into something, I do it. <laughs> It's just, I love hip hop. So in that case, it felt like a a good place for it. So let's shift over and talk about a couple of
1: themes you you didn't work on, but you have some appreciation for. Uh, let's Let's start with Mogul.
0: I'm Brandon Jenkins, and this is Mogul.
1: So Mogul is a Gimlet media show. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a documentary series. Yeah, it changes from season to season. It kind of profiles different sort of personalities and individuals and figures in, in the sort of music and hip-hop world.
0: What about that theme is interesting to you? I like it because it was surprising. When you're listening to a show about hip-hop, particularly because the show always has some kind of cold open before you get to the theme, you're not necessarily expecting like a essentially kind of a drum and bass theme song. It's not, And and what I like about it is it's driving, it's very much like propelling you into the story, which I love. I love how he says you're listening to Mogul and then boom, you hear the the drum beat come in and you're in it. I love that in general about themes and when it feels like rhythmically, it's really working with the show. The predictable move was to have like a boom bap beat or a trap beat and have it be like, okay, this is a hip hop show, this is what you're (laughs) listening to. But that's not necessarily, that doesn't trigger hip hop for me. And I love that. And that's such like a, a gutsy move by the composer and by the producers of the show to go that direction and I I just respect the hell out of it alright you got one more pick
1: here and it's from uh, the folks over at Bella Billy Balls which is a spinoff from the Crime Time folks This one's a little different because it comes from a pre-existing song. It's Light Asylum by Dark Allies. Yeah. I really dig it within the yeah. context of the episode. It's a liftoff kind of feeling, which is kind yeah. of what you want. Could you walk me through what spoke to you about this choice?
0: So, one, I like that it—you know it's the one example of like something that they picked that already existed. When doing a theme, even if you're writing a theme song, I think the role of the producers or the people making the show is as important as the composer. Because they really drive the intentionality of the theme. And in this case, it's so well selected because it's a liftoff for the show. But you know, when it hits, like you're, you're going in. And the show's really intense and the song is really intense. And I love that feeling of like grabbing you and like keeping you in that space for as long as you're gonna listen. And then the other thing I like is that there's lyrics, there's vocals, which is generally like not something you do in a theme song, right? the way they use it in the show actually highlights like when they they do these little breaks and these kind of little posts and in each one you hear a little bit more of the lyrics. And I, I just love that move. <laughs> Again, I think that's gutsy. And then it also really fits the like vibe and the time of the show, right? It has a very much like a goth, synth goth kind of post-punk feel, which is the kind of vibe of the whole show. In some cases, like asymmetry is good, but in some cases when they really nail the symmetry of... The theme song with the content, that also feels amazing. Ah, uh, it just makes you feel like, all right, now I'm got to get into a really serious and intense story, which is what they do, you know, episode after episode. What would you say are the rules for a theme song? Um, I think generally, people don't expect to hear lyrics or vocals. That's one thing, like, in a theme. The other thing is generally, theme songs propel you into a show versus necessarily, like, grounded. And so... The ballad of "Billy Balls is a good example. It's a it's a lift off into the content of the show. Same thing with the mogul theme, but in some cases, like it grounds you into the content versus necessarily lifting you off into it. So that's kind of a rule that I think can be broken. That's really fun to break. Another one is generally theme songs have percussion in them, hmm. but generally, the, when people want a theme song, they want something that's like driving. That that's a that seems like a kind of an unspoken rule. If you if you kind of survey all the theme songs. Out there, they always end up having some sort of percussion. That's a rule that I think could be broken more. The other thing is, people generally don't want theme songs to be dark. And that goes back to the shying away from darkness in podcasting. It's just been a a format that's been dominated so long by that sense. It's acceptable, for example, for HBO to have a show like The Leftovers and then also have a show like Betty, this new show that they have, which is really good and very bright and happy. Those live on the same network, and I love both. Whereas I think in podcasting there's much more of a propensity towards brightness, towards like uh, whimsicalness, towards like being sarcastic about things or, or like not being too genuine or sincere. And I think that's a something that'll be corrected over time as more and more people get into the game and, and everything you know kind of gets better and better and gets more and more advanced. That's a ru- another rule that I like hopefully want to break in the future with some theme song or make something that's just very dark and brooding to fit something that's dark and brooding. Round
1: team, it's fantastic to talk to you. I really, really appreciate this. Likewise, man. Music composition is still a field very much dominated by men, but Hailey Shaw didn't let that stop her. We'll speak to her in a minute. Sound familiar? Earlier in the show, Ramtin Arablouei told us how much he loved the theme song from the Gimlet podcast Mogul. And as it turned out, for this next part, we had booked the very same woman behind that theme. Haley Shaw, who also composes music under the name So Wiley. I had to tell her.
2: Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, <laughs> he, oh my God. He loves
1: the scoring for that show.
2: Oh, that's so sick. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I... Uh... I feel like because our field is sort of niche, the Mm -hmm. compliments from other people doing what I'm doing are like the highest compliments, you know, Um, (laughs) I take those very seriously.
1: (laughs) Can you briefly list all the shows that you've worked on at Gimlet?
2: Sure. Oh my God, it would probably take quite a while. (laughs) Go Um, for it. So the main shows I've worked on at Gimlet are uh, Mogul, which I'm currently working on now. I worked on The Habitat. I worked on... The Horror of Dolores Roach. Hmm. I've dabbled in music for The Journal, which uh, came out recently this past year and is a daily show with The Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal. Journal, yeah. Chompers, the daily toothbrushing mm. show. <laughs> um, <laughs> did the theme song for that. It's tough because if I list all the shows I've mixed on, it's probably all of them.
1: Yeah, so so you have a hand on directly shaping the given sound.
2: Sure, thanks. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's it's like... Yes, <laughs> just by <laughs> by way of being there for long enough.
1: So I just want to make sure that I get the definitions down, because I think there's a sort of lack of fluency around what music scoring means versus sound design, particularly as it relates to podcasts and radio shows. Mm-hmm. How would you sort of differentiate between what sound design is and what scoring is?
2: Yeah, this is an interesting question that I think is the biggest gray area in our field versus mm. fields like television or film that are so much more mature in a sense, Sound design, I believe, is, like, the largest umbrella for what we do, which is, like, a combination of writing music for a show, shaping the sound of the show. So does it have immersive sound design, like, with ambient room tone sort of things? Or Mm. does it have sound design that you record, like, fully, like, um, sound effects that you source from libraries? Or is there no music? Like, that decision is sound design to me as well. Mm. But also sound design is a more specific thing, right, that we know of taking and sourcing sound effects from libraries and putting it into a show um, to enrich the sound of the show. That's like sort of a more specific definition of sound design that, Mm. in my opinion, kind of falls under the larger definition that people tend to use to mean music, mixing, and sound design.
1: And do you feel like there's still relatively few people doing this work?
2: I would definitely say it's grown. When I started, I'm not sure I knew of like that many, especially full-time positions in the field doing specifically this. I think a lot of people in podcasting have had to be scrappy at the start, especially, and do six jobs at once. And- Mm. When I first got into this field, like that was part of like the jack of all trades nature was part of what got me the job in the first place, you know, and that wasn't true in other fields. In other fields, you have to become an expert in one tiny slice, you know, to make your mark. And in this field, I felt that due to the nature of it, you know, it was an asset to understand sound design, but also be a good mixing engineer, but also be, you know, a composer and understand music editing and kind of be able to do many things, wear many hats.
1: A startup among startups, basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious, like on a more personal level, what, what draws you to music composition and scoring?
2: That's actually a really great question because I've never even really asked that of myself. I think, um, you know, I started playing instruments when I was really young and my mom is actually a violin teacher. And so music mm-hmm. has always been a really big part of my family. And so it's always just been kind of, a part of who I am, playing music at least. And then I started composing really young as well. I think I was in fourth grade when I first wrote like a little piano piece. Hmm. So creating music and sort of communicating with other people through that music, but also through the creation of that music is really important to me. And I think that's why I've been drawn to writing for narrative hmm. and and also producing because I want to help other people sort of reach their vision. Yeah. It's not quite as exciting to me to just write alone or create something alone. I really like the communication aspect of composing.
1: What do you think makes good music composition like what do you look for what does what does a process look like in your mind? How do you how do you sit down and think through a piece for a narrative?
2: This is sort of an answer in two parts maybe the first part being, what I like to do for my own music, but the second part being sort of as a listener, what I like to hear. So for me, like I always start every project with trying to work with the showrunner or uh, work with the material or glean from what I'm hearing. What is the identity of this project? What's its overall character? And I'm thinking like macro here. Mm. And then the second question I tend to ask is how should the intended audience like feel about the project as a whole? So like how does this come off to people? And then like what is the effect of my music within the overall work? So am I trying to cause a ruckus? Like am I trying to do something bombastic <laughs> here? Or is it meant to be subtle? And like what serves the narrative the most? Mm. So that's sort of where I start for me Especially in podcasting, I think with music that I hear in shows, like as a listener, just casually, I really like big swings. And I think sometimes if you're trying to do something new and something sort of innovative, and it's a big swing and it's sort of like a whole idea, like you go all in, I really appreciate that, even if it doesn't work. Hmm. You know, I mean, even if it doesn't end up working, it's nice to hear people trying things out musically.
1: Okay, let's start with one of your picks here. Actually, let's start with yours. So you sort of picked out A Flurry, which is a track from The Habitat, which you scored. Yes. Let's play that. So uh, for context here, uh, The Habitat is an audio documentary that follows basically the plight of a group of scientists that, I guess, quarantine in preparation for or in simulation of a Mars colony situation. Is that uh, the accurate way to describe the show?
2: Yes. Yeah. So they are quarantined in a dome in Hawaii in sort of pursuit of finding out what it would be like to live on Mars.
1: So let's talk about that track. I so I'm I'm not quite sure what I'm hearing. I'm hearing uh, a, a bunch of digital sounds. I think, mm-hmm. um, and it feels like the effect that you're trying to create is kind of a rising crescendo, exactly. not super dramatic, maybe a little ominous. What what was the sort of major emotions you were thinking about when you're putting that track together?
2: So the idea for the overall score was this meeting of these big space ideas, like unfamiliar territory and expanse, things that feel unfamiliar. And then the human element of the story, which is like six humans living very close together, very sort of intimately. And so, you know, I wanted to create a human side of the score as well. So using acoustic instruments, but then treating them in a way that feels very digital, sort of meeting the human and this unfamiliar aspects of the story. Mm. So... With this, what you're hearing is a lot of sort of close-miced, intimate acoustic instruments treated in weird digital ways that, like, couldn't actually be played in person. Mm. And, like, human sounds, like, literally human sounds. For instance, in this track, there's a whistle that's put through, like, a delay and a hugely long reverb. And there are a bunch of cellos that are put through an arpeggiator because, Mm. you know, we're trying to meet these two ideas of warm, analog, kinetic, and unfamiliar, expansive space, (laughs) so. (laughs) And as you said, the crescendo is definitely purposeful. I wanted this to feel like a wedge because there's so much energy building up to this moment where they close the door. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired by something that one of the crew members says in tape during the episode.
1: Bye, guys. we wave goodbye. And then we enter. And then, well, then it's silent.
2: We close the door and then it's silent. And so I wanted this to feel sort of like a drop off moment at the end mm. of this cue.
1: So let's move on to uh, the next pick that you had 10 uh, Things That Scare Me. <coughs> 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 So it it sounds like a very traditional or conventional theme almost. Uh, There's like a hook. uh, It's kind of like a a, like a rhythm and a loop. What draws you to this theme?
2: What I like about this theme is that like the crux of this show is you know it's created around people reading through a list of ten things that scare them, and so it's like a list format with embellishments or stories surrounding bits of the list along the way, but that means that they have so many different recording settings. And so a lot of the tape is like phone tape or super rough or people are recording themselves, et cetera. And the theme kind of, to me, like what sets it apart is that it matches the style of the tape in the show itself. You know,
0: Hmm. It has
2: these elements of like hard cuts and it speaks to how the sound design is in the rest of the show. Another reason I wanted to talk about this theme is because from listening to many of these like in a row – there's like a little Sonic Easter egg in the very start of every episode that like has to do with something that happens later in the episode. Mm. So it'll be like a baby cry or something sound from later in the episode and they plop it in at the start. It's tough to notice and I it, there's almost like no reason to do this other than if you like listen closely and it's like little treat
1: that's crazy. I, I've, I, so I love the show and I re listen I to it a bunch and I don't think I've ever known that.
2: <laughs> It'll be like, wah, nah, 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 you know, <laughs> like it's like, it's, it's in there. So if you go back and listen to it, it's like pretty cool.
1: Yeah, no, there's a, there's a way in which I think that show so, seems like a collage. Like it's, yes. it, you know, you can kind of paste a bunch of different things together. Yeah, um, I
2: appreciate it because it's like, it's very high concept and it's like, it feels <laughs> pasted together, but it also feels purposeful.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the last track here. It comes from a show called Moonface, an independent audio drama from James Kim, who I think used to be your colleague.
2: Yes, he is amazing. I worked with him briefly at Gimlet and yeah, A plus dude.
1: So this track or this sound comes from the last episode of the show. It's only six parts. And the context here is it's basically you're going to hear one of the characters read out a note with pulsing music behind it. I grew, I grew up, up in Andong, a small village, village in the, in the middle, middle of South Korea.
0: Korea. My, my father, father was a farmer, and,
1: and my mother, mother sold vegetable and fruit and at the
0: market. I had five siblings. We were poor. Mm-hmm.
1: Every morning, my mother would walk me to school when I was little. (sighs) I still remember those walks. How my mother would make me smile. The sound of the Nakdong River right beside us. I don't know, maybe it's just sort of in my nature to be like a, an overly emotional Asian dude, but like that, that stuff hits, man. <laughs> First
2: of all, this whole thing sounds like an indie movie and gave me all of those feelings. And, and like, it's just such a beautiful story. He he just absolutely nailed it. I mean, yeah, I was so impressed by this. And I listened to the whole thing in like one day.
1: <laughs> what are the difficulties of implementing a scoring like that?
2: Well, It's really tough to put pieces of ambient music in a podcast format without it necessarily feeling stagnant or not feel like there's movement. And, you know, in a sense, it matches storytelling and the human voice in an intimate way. Like it matches the medium well, but it's actually difficult to implement. I think the form of the piece allows us to sort of float through time in a way that's tough to do without narration in a podcast and the music just gives this podcast such a reflective tone
1: i just want to make a quick observation here it's not there i feel like there is a a um, a threat maybe sort of an aesthetic similarity between all the three picks that you've made
2: oh interesting they, they I all even thought about uh, it.
1: they all have that sort of like drifting quality or that that light dreamscape kind of we're not quite in a physical world yeah. kind of feel to it I'm curious as to like if that's if that's yeah. something that you feel like it's a it's a part of your signature style if you have one if you think
2: it's not conscious but I I think you're right especially with these picks you know it might speak even more to what types of things I glean as working well in, in our field right um, then maybe even just my own personal like style preferences but I definitely I sense that I sense that through line.
1: <laughs> uh ironically, Through Line is the name of uh Tins, uh podcast, the other person I was interviewing for this episode.
2: <laughs> Full circle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, uh before wrapping up, I just gotta ask, w- what has your experience been working in a male-dominated field?
2: Yeah, I mean, good question. I i definitely feel like um everybody who's like not a white straight man is in need of more sort of industry support as composers because for hundreds of years that's been who has been writing music. That being said, I've definitely seen so many women take to technology of late and sort of become their own music producers. And composing music is a very digital thing now. And so I think like the rise of consumer audio has helped a lot more people who weren't represented in the field, have access to things that allow them to learn and take control of their sound. And it is an exciting time. And I've also seen like, Uh, Social justice has become trendy for corporations for better or worse, a lot of times worse, but also better. So there's been like a sort of rise in people being passionate about finding these creative people who weren't represented before in the field, for sure.
1: Did you feel like you had adequate mentorship from women coming out the field?
2: You know, Irene Trudell over at WNYC, she was kind of amazing for me to like work with her and see her like in her job she was recording soundcheck for a few years and Hmm. or probably more than a few and just like she's a boss
1: why was she amazing
2: i was interning at soundcheck as like a production intern like not as an engineering intern and she extended my internship and uh, took me on as an engineering intern and i like helped to record soundcheck with her for a few months there
1: it's always remarkable to me just how important mentors are yeah Especially if you're not the majority demographic. Totally. Haley Shaw, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you guys so much. This was so, so nice.
1: Haley Shaw. She's a composer, sound designer, and audio engineer at Gimlet Media. There's a little bit of news this week, and to help us walk through it, we're going to talk with Caroline Crampton, who writes for Hotpot for me, and she's based out in the UK. Caroline, welcome to the show. Hi. All right, first piece of news this week, and this is a kind of a big one if it's true. According to a report by The Information, which is a tech news publication, Stitcher, which is one of the bigger podcast-specific companies in the space, is currently being shopped around by its parent company, Scripps. Details are pretty scant at the moment, but there's a little bit of talk in the piece that possible buyers could be Spotify or SiriusXM stitcher is kind of a classic company It does a little bit of everything it does ad sales it makes shows it works with partners it has an app it's neither focused in any particular area nor is it big enough it feels like it can compete with some of these bigger spendier competitors and so this acquisition rumor or this sort of selling off rumor comes at a really interesting time for that company and i'm curious caroline as to what you make of this news
3: well, I think it makes a lot of sense for Scripps, unless they are really keen to try and refashion Stitcher into the kind of podcast company that might compete with Spotify. An easier way is just to sell it to somebody who does want to take that fight on, really. There's also the possibility that there's actually some serious money to be made for them, since they bought Midroll for, what, $50 million, 50 million, dollars? million yeah. in 2015?
1: Yeah, that was, uh, that was way before there was this hot market that we have right now.
3: Exactly right. So Spotify has massively inflated the market for acquiring podcast companies so they could easily double their money, let's say. And, you know, who in this economy is going to turn that down?
1: Yeah. And, and I suppose the challenging question is sort of like... um you know, if you're in a citrus position, you either need a parent company that's willing to give you a, a ton of money to go after, or at least compete with the big spenders right now, that would be Spotify, but also companies like Art Heart Media that is only sort of focused on audio.
3: So I reckon there's probably two types of acquisition that could happen. Either a much bigger audio player that wants something that stitcher has so they might not want to duplicate their own operation with the app and everything but there might be one or two elements like for instance the partnership with my favorite murder that they're very keen to get hold of that's one way it could happen another way would be a legacy media operation that doesn't currently have much of an audio outlet Mm. just wanting to sort of buy one out of the box and stitcher could very easily be that for them
1: this might not be the most charitable way to read this, but like Stitcher kind of feels like a starter kit almost <laughs> if you're yeah. a deep-pocketed legacy media company looking to jumpstart your entry into the space.
3: Yeah, you could have, in one stroke, you could have you know, an app, a content pipeline, a talent network, a hugely popular deal with some really great creators in My Favourite Murder. You'd kind of have everything from zero to ten in one go.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what Entercom did when they bought both Cadence 13 mm. and Pineapple Street at the same time. They have this sort of, you know, entryway into the market, though. I still don't have a good, clear sense of how Entercom has sort of progressed over the past year. So it will be curious to see who ends up being the sort of acquirer here, if, of course this report turns out to be true. I think it is. I've heard rumors about this for a while. For the record and for what it's worth, a Stitcher spokesperson told the information that they do not comment on rumors. So, you know, a non-comment comment is also a comment, I guess.
3: There's also the option that it gets shopped around and there aren't any serious takers. I think that's also a possibility right now. We've seen some sort of acquisition moves in the last couple of months, but nothing I suspect on the scale that Scripps might hope for for Stitcher.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of still feel like Stitcher is like pretty valuable, even though in its current position, it's kind of hard to move for it. Like, I think somebody's gonna pick them up, mm. if only for this sort of intellectual property piece of it. Uh, which brings us to the second story, Canus Thirteen. We just saw, talked about them being one of the companies that was bought by Enercom, which is a older radio conglomerate. They just recently announced the creation of a new division. It's called C13 Features. And according to the press release, C13 Features will use, quote, a traditional Hollywood blockbuster movie creative approach to construct audio features at scale, which is a very PR jargony way to say it. Essentially, it's a division to create a bunch of podcasts and programs that would essentially serve as an intellectual property like pipeline machine. Of course, this is not anything new. We've seen similar plays, including this company called Q-Code, which has this habit of making very sort of low-rent fiction podcasts, and they just kind of slap up a Hollywood name on it and maybe try to convert it into a television show. We also see this uh, in a bunch of different ways. Endeavor Audio is a company or an entity that's doing something in this space as well. So, Caroline, when you hear this, when you sort of see this trend playing out, you know, what does it make you think, like, I really want to listen to those shows? Like, wh- how how do you feel about this kind of trend in particular as a consumer?
3: As a consumer, I must admit, I'm pretty baffled by it. Because when I have enjoyed fiction podcasts, it's been mostly serialized stuff, you know, a story that builds over six or eight episodes or even continuously, as in something like Welcome to Night Vale, for instance. So I'm a bit baffled by the idea of a really long-form one-off story. They're saying that these could be standalone 90 to 120-minute shows. I can't see that fitting into my life. Everything that you do around enjoying a movie in your life, you know, you make certain foods, you sit with other people, you sit in a room – I can't necessarily see how you would translate that to the audio experience where it's mostly something you do by yourself. You listen while you're doing other stuff. But I guess like all these things, I'm willing to be surprised.
1: I, I don't know. I think the thing that bugs me the most about this is on the one hand, like a very square peg, round hole kind of situation. But it's also just, you know, it, it, it just feels like very unins- <laughs> uninspired. Mm. There's the notion of like quote unquote movies for your ears it's discounting of what's possible in this space and maybe I'm elitist like I I'm trying to sort of balance myself out to think whether my preferences here are just uh hoity-toity and overly quote unquote sophisticated or something
3: yeah there was definitely a, a sense of that which is why I, I say I'm like open to trying it but I do think that the kind of language they're using around it is absolutely going to get a lot of people in the existing audio drama podcast space really really furious this whole idea that you know this new podcast studio has just invented the idea of making high quality audio fiction experiences is absolutely the kind of thing that gets people up in arms
1: right it's a very columbusing kind of thing
3: exactly yeah we've just discovered this new thing except there were people here already yeah
1: Alrighty, so uh, usually we wrap up these segments with a podcast recommendation. What's yours for this week?
3: So I would recommend a podcast called Anthems, which comes from Broccoli Content, a UK podcast outfit that's backed by Sony. They call it an anthology series. They publish a daily first person monologue essentially all made by different contributors the current season is on the theme of pride it being pride month and there's one in particular that i would recommend by he's actually the bbc's lgbt correspondent the first person ever to hold that role a guy called ben hoat and his episode is called champion and it's all about his feelings growing up as a black gay man looking for any kind of representational role models and how he got really into the sixth series of Big Brother UK where there was a contestant called Derek who was this outrageous right-wing Tory guy who was really into fox hunting but he was an out gay man who was also black and so how Ben kind of reconciled his own politics and seeing this guy on screen and how that helped him grow up.
1: Caroline Crampton. She writes Hot Pod with me and she's based in the UK. Caroline, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at Elias.com slash Servant of Pod. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios.
2: Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people.
0: If there's no water, there's no water for everybody.
2: It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old.
1: This is a historic thing coming.
2: And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.